my experience has been that women have to be convinced they're ready for a bigger role. And we have to make sure that bigger roles are not correlated with more work. You're doing a different job, but getting a promotion from a VP to a senior VP should not mean that you go from working 40 hours a week to working 60 hours a week. It means you're doing a different job. Welcome to Future View. Now that's Eileen Campbell, one of the most senior, successful and experienced executives in the market research industry and beyond. Eileen was the global CEO of Canton Millwood Brown, helping drive them to revenue in excess of a billion US dollars. She is also the CMO of IMAX, bringing superb movie experiences to audiences worldwide. She's now shaking things up again in the MR sector as board chair at Rival Group. In doing these interviews, I've been incredibly fortunate to talk to some wonderfully varied, accomplished, funny, and interesting execs from different countries and companies. For me, in any case, talking to Eileen has been one of the most thought-provoking and insightful conversations I've had so far. We talk through her career and discuss issues such as integrating different cultures, encouraging women into senior executive positions, the future of movies, where the insight process and even the future of work goes next. Absolutely love talking to Eileen. Hopefully you enjoy listening too. First, though, I'd like to tell you a little bit about Sino, a really innovative research platform who are already working with the likes of Sint, Odeon Cinemas, Omnicom, Bonnier Group, Unilever, and a host of other big name brands. Now, Sino incubated and tested their CRM and consumer research platform in the Nordic markets first. They've now extended to a worldwide footprint. Not only can they enable customers to link their survey data to other data sources, hence giving much better targeting, they also take away the hassle of gathering, storing, and enhancing customer data, and they do it all in a privacy compliant manner. You can get up to 20% off key products by quoting FutureView and emailing the CEO, Jochen Nomenen, at jnu at synoint.com. That's jnu at synoint.com. And now, on to the interview. So, Eileen, uh, firstly, thanks so much for joining today. I'm really, really delighted to have you on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, thank you. Thank you for joining in your, your morning over on, over on the, the East Coast um, in Canada. We've got lots and lots to talk about. But first up, if it's OK, I wanted to do a little bit of an icebreaker and delve into what's becoming the kind of traditional question, as in what's one thing that most people wouldn't know about you? Not necessarily greatest, darkest secret, just something that isn't necessarily, <laughs> you know, on, on an easy find on Google or LinkedIn or something like that. Well, thank God I don't have to expose my deepest, darkest secrets. Huh? <laughs> well, you, you can um, if you want. <laughs> no, no, I won't. I promise. Um, you know, I guess what would people not know about me? Oh, probably lots of things. But I, I tend to be a um, every decade adventurer. So on on big birthdays, I try and do something unexpected. So one year I jumped out of an airplane. One year I bungee jumped at the highest uh, bungee jumping site. Um, and people who know me well will know that's out of character. Uh, that is really cool. I should, I should uh, potentially try and take some inspiration out of that and be a, be a little <laughs> be a little bit braver on some of the stuff I'm doing. Uh, now, you've had a really fascinating journey through the world of research and agencies and other things, as I think we'll get onto this, um, in a moment. But if it's okay, could we just take a bit of a run through your career and some of the highlights and the things you, you've learned along the way? Sure. So how did you get into the industry in the first place? You know, one of my favorite quotes on that is uh, I have a friend who said, you know, first the band broke up, um, but but that wasn't that wasn't the case in in my life. Um, I actually started as a student. I was putting myself through university. I was, you know, poor. I needed a job. Um, and at the time where I was going to school was close to the headquarters of a company at the time known as National Family Opinion. 
which became NFO, which in turn became TNS, which in turn became Kantar. So I started out really, really early in my career in the insight space um, and found it to be a place where you could reinvent yourself over and over again. So kind of settled there. And what does reinvent yourself sort of mean? And which which uh, sort of outlets did you find to, to explore? You know, uh, what I've always thought is fascinating about our industry is that um, my personal evolution and the industry's evolution always created new opportunities. So, you know, I started out as someone who was doing um, administrative kinds of, of tasks early on. Um, but if you're naturally curious, this is a space in which you'll never have the excuse to say I'm bored. Um, you know, we're dealing with new problems, new issues, new challenges every single day. And so so I've been fortunate in that as I matured professionally, there were always seemed to be roles that were well suited to kind of my evolving skills. Yeah, I can certainly see that. Um, I, I suppose it's there may be something of a misnomer, I think, um, of some people outside the industry that it's slightly narrow. But actually, there really is a lot of a lot of different directions you can go in. Um, you know, whether you're exactly. you know whether you're a storyteller, as we were talking about, or you're really mm-hmm. into stats and advanced analytics, or you want to do business development. Yeah, there's such such a range. Totally, totally, and and because I'm I'm sort of naturally quite curious. I've sort of dabbled in all of those spaces. Yeah, and, and obviously did it very, very well because then you went on to become the CEO of, uh, of Millwood Brown, I guess, which then mm-hmm. became Canton Millwood Brown at a later point in North America, yeah. and then the global CEO as, as well for, you know, for several years. So how did that journey sort of happen? How, how did the, the role evolve and how did the industry evolve uh, during your time with Millwood Brown? Well, you know, I'd, I'd been with NFO for a long time and I got recruited away by a guy named Angus Reed, who some of your listeners will know, know Angus. Angus was the biggest pollster in Canada and he was doing a U.S. startup, then eventually a global startup. So sort of that was the segue prior to Millward Brown. And I joined the company as the CEO of the North American business. And it was at a really interesting inflection point. And this will make me sound a bit like a dinosaur, but um, it was at the beginning of the the internet era. Mm. Um, and at the time, no tracking and actually not much of anything was being done online. Um, so I think because perhaps the U.S. was maybe a little bit ahead of the rest of the world, um, it allowed me to be very active in something that was integral to the future of the company. Um, and so I think that that certainly contributed to my ability to have a broader influence in the business. Yeah, I can certainly see that. I, I also wanted to um, touch on a point I think that raises around how easily different parts of the world have started to embrace this change and differences in kind of working cultures. So as an example, did you run into sort of stodgy Brits like me who were like, no, we can't <laughs> change anything? You know, and then you had, you know, I don't know, vibrant Australians who were like, yeah, let's go and do it. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I would never call the Brits stodgy. Never, ever, ever. Um, obviously, Millward Brown had very deep roots in the um, in the UK, and some of our best and brightest, and and you know, the the intellectual underpinnings of the company came from the UK. Um, that said, you know, uh, global transition is is difficult, right? I mean, we're seeing it as the pendulum swung, you know, to heavy globalization. I think at the moment we're seeing a um, uh, a swing back a little bit to localization, um, particularly on the heels of the pandemic. But, you know, one of the things that I loved about about my life at Millward Brown was 
the ability to to really understand other cultures, understand other business working styles. Um, you know, it was it was one of the great gifts the company gave me was the opportunity to to really meet people all over the world, meet clients all over the world, understand what we had in common, and and also appreciate the the important differences. Something I think I've enjoyed, and I know others have, both from a sort of consumer insight perspective, talking to different cultures, but working Mm -hmm. with with businesses in different areas. Can I ask, Eileen, how do you pull people together? What would your tips be as a sort of a senior CEO when you've got the non-stodgy Brits or whoever it might be, but they're going, we don't, it doesn't work like this. It's just our country doesn't work like this. And you kind of know you've got to do it as an organization. How, How do you address those types of issues? You know, it's it's always challenging. It's not dissimilar to like in mergers and acquisitions, right? You acquire a company and people say, well, that's not the way we do it here. Um, I think some of it is you always have to approach it from a listening mode to really try and understand um, because in all of those, we don't do it that way here. There's a kernel of truth, right? People aren't, aren't simply being obstinate in most cases. Um, and so you need to understand what is genuinely um, a legitimate concern and what is just a resistance to change. And I would say in some cases in an international role, particularly as a, an American, not to be seen as, um, you know, sort of arrogant exporters of all things American. Um, so, so to me, it, it all starts with, with listening and empathy. It's also important to find the individuals in all of those, um, different cultures and companies who who will open up to you, who will be your Sherpas um, and help you understand the history and the challenges and the and the opportunities in any given country. The other thing I found that was super valuable was um, not to be a net exporter of how things got done. So when we found something that was being done in a market that wasn't one of our major markets, you know, Somebody in Poland was doing something really interesting. You know, how did we export that to the rest of the company and make everybody feel like um, there were there were opportunities for their thinking to get integrated into the rest of the world? I think that's a great tip. Actually, I can really see that. And so, yeah, so you show it's a two-way street. It's not just kind of totally. coming from, from, from the corporate kind of head office. And then did you, if you don't mind me asking, did you sort of promote that then across sort of Millwood Brown? Like, you know, you draw attention to it to some extent of going, look, the guys. Totally. Are, yeah. Totally. I mean, you know, everybody should get their star turn. Not Not because you're, you know, divvying out attention, but because there was some really you know, there were some really fantastic thinkers and innovators um, all around the business. And, you know, it's interesting that the idea of, of a headquarters was one that I tried to actually break down in Millward Brown. You know, when people would say, where were you headquartered? I'd say, you know, nowhere and everywhere. You know, we want our clients to feel like whoever you're dealing with is fully empowered um, to solve their problems, not, oh, geez, you got to go talk to the guys at HQ. Mm. So, so you were actually a pioneer of virtual working in some ways as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. I used to say for years and years and years that talent trumps geography. Um, and I wasn't really thinking about in a virtual sense, but I was thinking about, you know, we had a lot of global roles and the idea that a global role didn't need to be based in London or New York. Um, it could be based in Sydney or, um, you know, 
anywhere in the world. Yeah, yeah, um, very much so. So you were you were a pioneer from that that kind of perspective. Maybe it's a nice segue as well into, I guess, the core question as to how Millwood Brown sort of stayed on top in such a competitive sector. We actually looked right. at some sectors and decided not to go there because you're like Millwood Millwood Brown's in there. We'll never displace them. So, <laughs> so, so what's well, the uh, what's the secret? Well, you know, for all the entrepreneurs that listen to your um, to your podcast, Henry, I would say. Um, it's a it's an example of the real power of data assets. You know, we've been in a world where subscription revenues has been a really powerful driver of um, enterprise value, um, but data assets are an incredibly um, powerful driver of both enterprise value, stickiness with clients, um, and I think that's something that Millwood Brown led well in. Um, developing developing databases and um, and also continuing to evolve them. Um, I think part of it is you gain the reputation for those data assets, and then you have to be sophisticated about evolving them and not just being a slave to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I'm a I'm a big believer in in the power of building data assets. I also feel like it's it's um, you know I used to say all the time it's um, it's easy to take 10 geniuses and codify what they do in a way that makes 100 people look like geniuses. It's a lot harder to hire 100 geniuses. Um, and so this idea of developing knowledge, codifying it, sharing it, um, was, a, was a really powerful construct. I, I love that phrase, actually. I hadn't heard that, the idea of taking whatever it is, the 10 geniuses, and then seeing if you can kind of codify the essence of what they're doing. And then you also mentioned that you need to be smart about how you evolve them, though, as well. So what what are some of the examples or issues or challenges that you, you think companies face in terms of evolving those databases? I mean, I think the challenge is recognizing that you have to. And, and you know, as I said, it, it is a form of a competitive moat, but it also can be a crutch. Um, so, you know, as, as the world of advertising evolves, um, one has to rethink what are key drivers of consumer behavior. So how does what you see online contribute to how you respond to something on TV and the other way around? How does something you see on TV make you more in tune to something that, that you see on your, your screen and increasingly on your mobile? I think where there is opportunity still and where consumer insights will always have a powerful role to play is in understanding the whys. For example, when I was at IMAX, um, our, our social media tracking was actually the most predictive piece of data we had. But then I need to understand, well, what drives those conversations on social? And how can I play a role in driving those conversations? And, and sometimes the, you know, the, the irony of it is it all comes back to advertising, which often sparks those conversations in the first place. Um, so understanding sort of the the consumer journey, which is sort of a buzzword du jour, but but a very important aspect of every marketer's life is is a uh, you know, job one, I think. Yeah, t- totally agreed. Uh, there, there's been I think quite a lot of commentary recently around the idea that you know data gives you the what, and you can see you know the the, the facts that are there. But if you mm-hmm. don't know the why, you may well draw very wrong conclusions as to what you should okay. do next. There can be a lot of reasons as to why you're seeing that kind of data point and you, you need a contextual picture in order to make the right decisions moving forwards. Exactly. And I think once you think you've decided on what to do next, being able to get feedback and understand 
how consumers are going to react to that because I'm sure you've been in the situations I've been in where in the boardroom, something sounds like a brilliant idea. And then you put it in front of consumers and they go, yeah, not so much. Uh, n- n- not at all. I've only ever had brilliant ideas. <laughs> God bless. <laughs> yeah, no, I wish I'd had any brilliant ideas, frankly. No. Uh, but um, so Eileen, you uh, just touched on this as well. You, you moved on from Millwood Brown and became uh, CMO of, of IMAX, which is uh, kind of close to my heart. I spent lots of time sort of working with film studios and yeah, and with, and with various people actually within IMAX. So before getting into the detail of that again a lot of speculation of have we seen the end of movies you know so i know there have been some really really big hits but they're kind of fleeting and i think attendance levels are what 30 percent down on, on pre kind of pandemic levels right. so, so what, what do you think do you think they're gonna audiences are gonna come back to the extent they were pre-pandemic you know, it's really interesting henry because i see a ton of parallels in the cinema industry and the return to office dilemma that we're all we're all facing um and i think a couple things to note one the cinema business wasn't that healthy before the pandemic right average occupancy in cinemas was i don't know 11 12 percent um in the pre-pandemic days um and then essentially were shut down i think last year was was aided a bit by a big backlog of huge blockbuster films and so, you know, everybody had sort of in the pipes, these huge blockbusters. But but I feel like, um, you know, I, I feel like the cinema industry has some interesting challenges. First and foremost, we need to remind people of the collective joy of experiencing things together. Having, and, I, and I'm heartened by the growing um, call for focusing on experiences, you know, younger Consumers, Gen Zennials, Millennials are an experience-based kind of cohort. And so I think the the movie industry has to do a better, better job. The cinema industry has to do a better job. And then, frankly, they have to deliver. Um, you lived through the same period that I did where cinemas got smaller and smaller and dirtier and dirtier and the popcorn got more expensive. And um, if, if we're going to live in an experience economy, we've got to give people a great experience. Yes, again, 100% agreed from my perspective. It's interesting that stat you gave around whatever it was, 11% occupancy occupancy at, at, at cinemas, because I suppose people who weren't part of the industry or aren't part of the industry, they don't think about it like that, just in terms of the amount of sort of seat redundancy across the course of the day, which is widely oh. being commented, like, you know, across the afternoons and even the weekday right. evenings and all that. It, it really feels like, um, well, and I know lots of people agree, like the whole sector needs to pull together and think how to shake up the experience. Um, as, totally, as totally. And, you know, when I, when I compare it to what's going on in trying to get people to, to return to the office, one, we have to understand and listen to why they don't want to do that. We have to give them a great experience um, and, and, you know, really rethink what should that experience be like. Uh, and, you know, I think the other thing the cinema industry is dealing with is, uh, you know, the people who make movies also increasingly have um, a revenue stream from from streaming um, and how you get people to um, reflect on the impact of letting stuff stream too soon um, on the overall box office for the movie and frankly, the overall revenue generated for, for the studio. Um, You know, I think one of the things that we're seeing is when people stream right away, even if it's a paid stream, um, the piracy issues go through the roof. 
Um, and then, of course, you naturally depress the box office, the more places people can see it for next to nothing. I, I also think, and if everyone will forgive me just a small hypothesis for a moment, that, that not enough work is being done in terms of understanding almost like the sequencing of different audience groups and what they're looking for across the windowing kind of options. Because I, I could well see for a given movie that a certain narrative that's a relatively simple narrative might work very well for a movie experience because you're know, presenting this, for instance, in the marketing or in the movie itself, because you want it all kind of wrapped up in yeah. 90 minutes or 120 minutes. Whereas a sort of more complex narrative with multiple characters may be more applicable for a series because you mm -hmm. know you've got more time and right. actually maybe that's more your expectation from a series right. as well. It's a 12, whatever, 12 hour commitment, not a, you know, not a exactly. two hour commitment. Uh, it's the proverbial horses for courses, right? Yeah. So but moving on to agency. So you're now the chairperson um, of the rival group. So mm -hmm. what does the rival group do and, and how, how's, it, how's it different from some of the other research groupings that are out there? You know, it's interesting. The rival group is sort of the penance for my past sins in many <laughs> really? ways. Um, you know, one of, one of the things that I've always felt really strongly about in, in our industry is that we have an inadequate appreciation for the raw materials that fuel what we do. And that's the, the generosity of people who are willing to participate in, in research. Um, like I hate the term respondents, they're people, they're human beings. Mm -hmm. And while I was unbelievably proud of what we did at Millward Brown, I was not always proud of how we did it, right? I mean, if, if you saw some of our tracking questionnaires, they were not a pleasing experience for the participant. And, you know, as our lives have gotten busier and and um, our tolerance for tedium has has gone down because we're in such a rapid you know, rapid response world these days. I also feel that clients may not be getting the best data at minute 27 of a questionnaire. And um, so Rival Group was really founded on the principle that participant experience was important and that insights should be seen as another major touch point for a brand. So it's not just do a boring survey with whoever you can find participate is give people a compelling brand experience that feels contemporary. Um, and so, so Rival Group is founded on using um, chat-based technology and what we're calling conversational insights. Um, so rather than sending you a survey that feels like a test, that feels like you're, you know, taking your SATs or your, um, you know, college entrance exams, something that feels more like a conversation. Um, and rather than a 30 minute, uh, boring survey, it might be broken up into, you know, a series of five minute chats. Um, and it feels native to, uh, you know, if, if you ask anybody in our business, would their kids take our surveys? The answer would likely be no. Would they use, do they even use email? The answer is likely no. Um, and so, so we're trying to invent a platform that is both, um, more participant friendly, and in turn delivers better, more timely um, insights for, for our clients. The other thing that we're marrying into our platform in, you know, in a single um, sort of stream is video. So, you know, for example, instead of an open end, um, we ask people if they would, if they would just talk straight to camera, like we're, you know, like we're chatting today over Zoom. And that's incredibly compelling in the boardroom. 
Um, I have to say, uh, some of the work we're doing is commanding C-suite attention in a way that, you know, a PowerPoint deck never in a million years mm. would. Um, you know, actually seeing your customers, actually hearing them, actually feeling their pain is an incredibly powerful tool. And when you can marry that with the rigor of big quantitative numbers, um, I, I think we're we're onto something that seems to be working quite well. Yes, could very much see that. And it's also been accelerated, I think, by the pandemic, again, in that I think that you, you and I and lots of people have become so much more comfortable about talking to camera in this type of environment. We're not going to totally. be as stilted as, as we once were. Totally. Um, you're, you're absolutely right. I think people are, are, are much more comfortable. We also found that um, by giving video, it's you can get video. So we have a, a number of communities where the client will have sort of a, a spokesperson who will come on at the beginning of the the chat and say, you know, hi, I'm so-and-so. Thanks so much for doing this for us today. Um, and it, it just humanizes the interaction. I mean, who are the um, the end clients you're primarily sort of targeting on this? Is it research agencies and being sort of like a white label tech provider or are you working directly with brands or both? No, directly with brands. And, and Rival Group is a, a tiny holding company. We have two brands within it. One is Rival Technologies who have built the platform and who work with clients who I would say are more in the do it yourself and do it with me kind of assisted serve world. And then we have another company called Reach3 Insights, which is a full service consulting business that uses rivals technology as the backbone of their operations. And they're more in the do it for me. So if you know if you think there are three big buckets in our business, you know, do it yourself, do it with me, do it for me, rival tech plays in the DIY and the do it with me and uh, reach three technology or reach three insights plays in the kind of fortune 200 world. I love, yeah, I, I love it actually. Again, that classification, I hadn't heard it quite like that before. Uh, again, it seems to make a lot of sense though, around having a, a, a central platform, but then it's almost a different phrase, managed service kind of wrapper around it, exactly. depending on what, depending on what the, the clients are looking for. And I, I also noticed when I was doing a little bit of online snooping and just looking on the mm -hmm. on the website that you started to integrate with other platforms such as Salesforce. And I was yeah. just wondering what the thinking is there. Um, well, you, we've got a lot of kind of API and webhook kind of work that we're doing. Um, and it, it runs the gamut, but some of it is that if... Um, a client on, on the client side, if an event happens, it triggers a chat. So, for example, we have a client who is a boat manufacturer. If somebody goes to the Miami Boat Show and they, they you know, they register with, with this manufacturer, they instantly get a chat back saying, hey, so glad you stopped by our booth at the, at the boat show. Tell us a little bit more. Um, and then their responses feed back into the client's database. Um, so that's a sort of a Salesforce type integration. Um, we also have some that are more in the um, customer experience where you receive a package that instantly triggers a chat. Then that feedback goes to the um, sort of the actual product team. So those are the kinds of things that that um, APIs and webhooks are really useful for. Something happens, it triggers a chat. The responses to the chat go back into a database and they trigger client action. 
Yeah, I think it's really smart and interesting in that it's also um, integrated almost like with other other records or other select statements of kind of like record. Um, rather than sitting in its own silo as sort of consumer insight in inverted commas in kind of a conventional way, it's it's actually exactly. really integrated with the rest of the business. Yeah, exactly. And and you know we continue to build big consumer insight databases. So the traditional purpose of insights, uh, you know, it continues to be a learning loop for the organization. But but we're also kind of tying in these very actionable, kind of almost more tactical responses to customer feedback. Fantastic. Now, a different type of business, and sorry, I want I might spring a couple of questions on you here and there in different kind of areas, um, but I was interviewing Michael McCrary at Pure Spectrum ah, the other day. Uh, my dear Mike, friend. And Michael, as usual, was lovely to talk to and incredibly insightful and gave so much good advice. So Pure Spectrum are obviously in a not necessarily conventional panel business, but they're in that type of area. So Michael told me why he thinks they're successful. So putting you on top, why do you think they're successful? Well, you know, uh, full disclosure, I sit on Michael's board. Yes, that's so why I raised. Sorry, that's why I raised. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I think audience is an incredibly, incredibly important part of our business, um, and Michael is doing a fantastic job of creating access to audiences. Um, and the other thing that I think he has done, um, that is distinctive and I think will be increasingly powerful in our space is something he's calling the peer score, which, um, you know, I think if you saw the grit report this, this past, I don't know, month or two ago, they talked about sample quality being one of the number one concerns clients had, you know, peer spectrum's ability to provide a score on the quality of sample. Um, is I think a, a very very powerful tool, and I, I in my mind will become more powerful. Um, you know, because there are shortages of participants for surveys, um, it's it's easy to it's it's easy to value volume over quality. Mm. Um, and I also think it is a little bit. Clients have a concern, but this is not a piece of the business they see very closely. They see that I got a thousand participants, which is what I was looking for. Um, you know, we see, gosh, some of those participants are not exactly who you thought they were or what you thought they were. And so I think I think some of the work that Michael's doing in on the quality side is is really powerful. Yeah, um, very much so. It's also an inter- interesting industry trend I've noticed uh, around trying to get uh, more accurate and kind of considered feedback around maybe sort of more specialist niche panels, communities, as you described. Right. With, you know, maybe sort of smaller is better, but talking to people who really, re- they're exactly the right people and they really know what they're talking about for this particular, totally. you know, this particular subject. We also really, really dig the idea of video verified. Um, uh, you know, how if you think work? about it, so in, in some of our communities, you know, as I said, we, we ask people to, to provide us with a video, video feedback. One of the things we're able to do then is to say, okay, this particular participant is video verified. Um, so if I told you I was, you know, a 17 year old on a video verification, you would quickly recognize that I'm not a 17 year old. Um, and so, so this idea of how do you build confidence that the people you're talking to are who you think you're talking to um yeah that makes a lot of sense actually i've heard various ideas around you know people scanning their ids and that type of thing but then you're running into all sorts of 
privacy concerns and that type of area? Yeah, we want to be more just in the natural flow of, you know, you're part of a community. We'd like to get to know you. Um, But it also is sort of a natural barrier to fraudsters. Yeah. Um, I should probably uh, move on because I could pick your brains for hours and hours on this type yeah, of yeah. Uh, the detail of this type of thing. Um, but I also really wanted to spend some time on a subject you've, you've written very eloquently about, not least there's a Forbes article um, I think that's mm-hmm. up, up on the website about the impact of the pandemic on women. So what should companies be thinking about to create a sort of a more equitable and for that matter, a more productive workplace? Oh gosh, that's you know that's a, a podcast in itself, Henry. There's there's so many things to to talk about. I think one of the first things companies should think about is that much of what um, women need or have have asked for in the workplace have benefited all employees, and perhaps we should quit thinking about it quite so much as women's issues. If I think about the number of guys I know who now feel they've got the time to coach their kids' football team. Mm. Um, or um, they won't be ostracized for taking paternity leave. You know, they they frankly have their female colleagues to thank for some of that flexibility. Um, and so I think in some ways we we need to quit thinking about it quite so much as as women's issues, um, while also recognizing that there is still a lot of work to be done to encourage women to step up into bigger roles, particularly as they're trying to balance um, families and child rearing and you know all those sorts of things. My experience has been that women have to be convinced they're ready for a bigger role. And we have to make sure that bigger roles are not correlated with more work. You're doing a different job, um, but getting a promotion from a VP to a senior VP should not mean that you go from working 40 hours a week to working 60 hours a week. It means you're doing a different job. Um, mm-hmm. And so so I think encouraging women to consider some of these bigger roles requires us to make sure that bigger responsibilities is, is not a corollary for, you know, decidedly more time in the sat, you know, time at work. Um, yes. So that's, that's one thing I feel strongly about. Um, and, and to that point, I also think we've got to get much more confident about measuring outcomes, not hours. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I call it time in the saddle. If all we value is time in the saddle, um, you know, you reward the, the people who are frankly the least efficient. Um, if we value outcomes, you reward the people who are most efficient. And you know that old saying, right? If you want something done, give it to a busy person. Yeah, very much so. Um, I think it's a such fantastic point. As you say, women are do tend to be, and here I am again, like sort of demarcating to a particular category, but tends to be a little bit sort of more collectivist anyway. And yeah. she's going, we're doing this for everybody. It's not just for us. Yeah. And that yeah, a lot of exactly. men have, you know, a lot of men have obviously kind of benefiting from that as well. I also think it's a fantastic point around this idea that promotions, if you move to a more senior role, it's not just about more hours. It's actually a different right. role. And I'm not sure how many employees are brave enough to say this is a different role. So what am I taking on and what am I no longer doing? Right. In order. Well, and you know, it's it's funny. I think we all have that tendency to, you know, setting aside gender. Um, when you get promoted to a role that presents challenges, it's easy to revert to what you used to do 
you know, when you jump in and decide I'm going to write the report myself or um, I'm going to manage that client problem myself because it's actually gratifying for us. It makes us feel good. It makes us feel like we're competent as opposed to saying, wait, 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 you know, that's going to solve the problem for the moment. Um, but it's not going to solve the problem for the long haul. So I, I think some of it is our own personal weaknesses, that there's something really gratifying about jumping back in and doing something you really know how to do um, when the new job presents a new set of challenges. So my my advice to you know newly promoted individuals is resist the temptation to always jump in and do it yourself, even though it will make you actually feel very good to do that. Yeah, because it's kind of more about yourself, actually, rather than what's good for the company by doing that. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, so, Eileen, just moving on a little bit, um, you uh, are also, I, I think, the, the founder of uh, an organization for women called C200. I'm actually not a founder, but I'm a board member. Oh, you're a board member. Okay. So can you just touch on C200 and what the organization does and the types of issues sure. it's addressing? Sure. C200 has been around for, gosh, I guess, 40 years now. Um, And it was founded at a time where trying to find 200 women who were um, CEOs or founders of businesses was actually quite a challenge. Um, And that was the that was the, the founding principle was let's bring together women who are either corporate CEOs or entrepreneurs of significant businesses um, and help each other out. Um, share our challenges, uh, make sure that we're uh, paying it forward for other women. And though the organization has certainly evolved, it's now, I don't know, almost 600 members. Um, that basic tenant of women helping women um, remains at its core. The organization is about half entrepreneurs, um, and they're women who have founded businesses with revenues of, I want to say, around $20 million and up, some very, very big businesses in the mix. Um, some businesses where they benefit a lot from exposure to predecessors who've grown businesses, and then corporate women who are CEOs um, or run big P&Ls. But the sort of at the root of it is they're all women who have P&L responsibility or had P&L responsibility and thus are in the position to to make real change. Um, yeah, it sounds sounds fantastic and a, a, a brilliant initiative. And I suppose worrying in the first instance that it was so difficult to find the 200 people, but hopefully that's right. that's changed now. You know, it's still not as easy as it should be, frankly. Um, you know, we, I think it was the best year ever for the Fortune 500 having female CEOs, but it's still something like 8%. You know, we're 51% of the population. Yeah, um, shockingly so- low, yeah. Still, still a lot of work to be done, but it's also what's really great about it is a big piece of C200 is paying it forward. So we have a program called See Ahead. If any of your listeners are interested in professional development where they get exposure to some of these great women, have them get in touch with me. See Ahead's a fantastic program for those women who are maybe one step or two steps away from the C-suite. Um, fantastic. Yeah. So I'll, uh, we'll make sure we call that out on LinkedIn posts and the website Fabulous. and that type of thing. Eileen, I'm conscious of time. We should probably move on. I had so many things I'd like to ask you about being a CEO. And if I can be really grossly unfair and just ask for just a couple of like headlines, what, what are the key factors that you think does make an effective CEO? You know, I think being relentlessly curious, recognizing that you don't have all the answers and the ability to listen and empathize are, are super important. 
I also think though, once you've done that, being very clear um, that you've taken everybody's perspective into consideration and a decision has to be made. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm big on allowing debate and then figuring out when to gavel down the debate. Mm. So, so to me, those two things, listen, integrate what you're hearing, but then be confident about making a decision. Um, and of course, you know, we, we talk a lot about sort of the more esoteric aspects of running an organization, but at the end of the day, they are businesses and being commercially sensible and understanding the economics and understanding all of your stakeholders, including your shareholders, um, is incredibly important. You know, I think it's it's um, it's sort of the prerequisite to get to do some of the higher value things is you've got to deliver on the business objectives. Yeah, it makes an enormous amount of sense. Uh, the Almost the other end of sort of the spectrum of the journey, I, I was doing an interview the other day with um, a founder in the space who just raised money from venture capital. And I asked him what he thought was important. Admittedly, he's an experienced founder. And he made a similar point. So you've got to understand how the business model for VCs work, because then you're mm-hmm. going to tailor it to what they're looking for. Um, and I guess it's sort of, it's for a sure. similar principle if you're a publicly quoted company or if you're a startup looking for pre-seed funding as they were in that instance. Exactly. Exactly. Well, and and frankly, if you don't do that homework to understand the world of a VC, you are in for a world of hurt um, because you won't be able to, to deliver on those expectations. So I think in the same way that VCs need to really understand the business they're investing in, we need to really understand the objectives of those investors um, to determine if it's a good fit. Mm, very much so. I'm just going to move on to a quick far round, if that's okay, Eileen, okay. Just, to, just to wrap up. So the idea is I just read out a short statement or question and you just give a, give a quick uh, top of mind sort of response. The first one's a slightly cheeky one, if you don't mind. But what are your best and worst characteristics? Oh, gosh, my best characteristic is probably you know, I've, I've said it repeatedly, but it's probably that I'm very curious. Um, my worst characteristic is I am not famous for my patience. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, there are times when I have to work very hard to to not push a pace that that is my pace, not someone else's pace. So what's your favorite or what have you found to be the most effective interview question? You know... I hate the kind of corny canned interview questions. I really, I really think if you can just have a authentic conversation with a candidate, one of the things I always want to know is what do you want to know about us? I think that tells you a lot about whether someone's done their homework, uh, whether their understanding of your company is accurate, uh, what personally motivates them. So I, I like to kind of put the ball in the, in the candidate's court and say, tell me what you, what, what, what can I tell you about us? Yeah, great, great advice. You're saying just to avoid all those kind of cans, like stereotypical oh. kind of questions. Yeah, and just yeah, have a conversation. Don't force it. people. Yeah, don't force people to, frankly, tell you lies. You know. Yeah, well, um, and I think there's there's a very there's a great difference that I think as we all know between someone who's potentially a great interviewee and somebody who turns out to be a great employee. We've all seen that. One hundred percent. One hundred. You know, I always say, could I fly across the country with this person? Okay, well, actually, that's a good mental question to be asking. You probably don't ask them that themselves. <laughs> no, <laughs> can I fly across there? Uh, yeah, you probably internalized that one. Final kind of couple of questions. Uh, what do you know now that you wish you'd known, say, 20 years ago? This is, this is going to sound politically loaded, and I don't mean it to. 
Um, I think that being able to get out of my American head, my, you know, I was raised in, I'm a dual citizen of the U.S. and Canada, but I was raised in the U.S. I grew up in a business culture that was very American centric. I wish I had known earlier or been exposed to executives earlier who would have helped me see the world in a more holistic way. Hmm. I see. Um, if I had more time, I'd ask you what some of those things they taught you, <laughs> or, that, or, or some of the some of the ways in which they'd encourage you to sort of see things differently would be. But we probably don't have time for that. Final question: What's your favorite or most sort of impactful book or, or recent book? So this is sort of a true confession time. I don't read many business books. In fact, I kind of I, I occasionally will read a business book, but it's not my it's not my thing at all. It can um, be fiction. It can be fiction. Yeah, it's fine. I, Anything, I'm a yeah. big. I'm a big reader of of novels. I try and read the um, the Man Booker Prize shortlist every year. Um, I see one of the most impactful books I ever read was by an author named Nadine Gordimer, who's a South African author, and it's called July's People. It's an old book. It's probably from the I don't know, maybe the maybe even the sixties, um, but it's a it's an incredibly powerful powerful book. Um, and uh, of the ones that I've read recently, I loved. Um, uh, the the last year's man booker, uh, one called The Great Circle. And I loved Claire and the Sun. And I thought Claire mm-hmm. and the Sun was a really interesting book for people in our space. So, you know, that's where fiction and uh, and our real worlds kind of meet. Yeah, I, well, well uh, Claire and the Sun, I must actually read that. I think it's the second time somebody's recommended it of, over, the last, of, of, over the last month or so. And, you know, it's a really quick read. It's not, it's not, um, Great Circle is, is, a heavy lift it's like a 600 page book but claire and the sun is is a really great read and it's not a it's not a big lift fantastic okay i shall uh i, I shall put that very very high on the list eileen thanks Excellent. so much I, I really appreciate it and it's um an absolute pleasure talking to you what a joy it was really nice to talk to you too henry just brilliant being able to pick eileen's brain for so long in the next few weeks we'll also be exploring different issues with the likes of amazon twitch Sint, si partners and reimagine ventures We'll also have more transcripts up shortly if you want to dig into previous interviews. If you'd like to support the podcast, please do. You can follow, rate, write reviews on Apple, Spotify. We're on Google Podcasts now. Or send me suggestions via LinkedIn or at futureviewpod at gmail.com. I also want to take a moment to call out the nonprofit Eileen mentioned, C200, who are doing amazing work promoting women's leadership and business. You can check them out and join and support at c200.org. Thanks again to Sino for sponsoring. If you want to get cost-efficient customer profiling, please contact jnu at synint.com. And make sure you quote FutureView for special discounts. See you next week.